Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. And this morning, uh, we're just going to take a single verse uh, that sits there, at least in the NA27, as a solitary one-verse paragraph. And a number of the commentators mention that this is really like a hinge between two paragraphs that each touch on the kingdom of God in their own way and each touch on the kingdom of God in sort of the the twofold way that the New Testament is constantly touching upon it. We've, we've used this phrase over and over again, and I'll use it again this morning both here and later in the message, the already aspect of the kingdom of God and that aspect of the kingdom of God that's not yet here. Um, Both of those aspects are found on each side of this verse, and so no doubt both of those aspects are also hinted at, at least in the kingdom of God language that's in the verse. For instance, the verse before... 9-1 is the last verse of Mark 8. And whoever may be ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Um, Now, the time in which we are tempted to be ashamed of Jesus and his words is right now. Right now. Not in the end. Right now. So it's within the range of what we would say the already aspect of the kingdom. He's telling us, don't be ashamed of the words of the king in this adulterous and sinful generation. But by the end of the verse, what do you have? You have him coming, the glory of the Father, with his angels. Well, that's the end of the age. That's the dawn of the new heaven and the new earth. That's the kingdom not yet here. By the same token, when you go into... uh, Mark 9, 2 and following, which is what we refer to as the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus received Peter and James and John, and he bore them up into a high mountain alone. And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became dazzling white exceedingly, more than any fuller or any washer could produce upon the earth. So there again, you have this supernatural manifestation that probably refers both to the resurrection of Christ, which isn't that far off, 
but even more so, and we'll stress this later in the message, so I'll just touch on it here, to the connection this dazzling white is supposed to cause the disciples to think about Daniel chapter 7, which is a picture of the ultimate coming of the king at the end of the age. And so in both texts, kingdom already, kingdom not yet. And our text is a hinge between those two, also mentioning the kingdom of God. So let's stand together. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he was saying to them, Truly I say to you, that there are some here standing who they shall not taste death until they may see the kingdom of God after it comes with power. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we often find ourselves in times of trouble. Even your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, found himself in trouble, especially right at the end of his life where he references the 22nd Psalm and these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My salvation is far off. The words of my cry of distress. And you know, O Lord, that we have circumstances in which cause us to feel, to wonder what you could possibly be thinking. You seem to have forsaken us in causing our health to forsake us. You seem to have forsaken us in causing circumstances to go in directions that we would have never wished and never hoped, but now must live with. And so we are tempted to say, as the psalmist says, Oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in this vein, we call out to you by day and feel at times that you don't answer us. We find you in the night to be silent. But you are always there. You are constantly dwelling in your holy place upon the praises of your people. In you, the followers of old trusted. They trusted, and you redeemed them. And Father, we join them and seek in this present evil age to be among those who trust you as they did and who look to and wait upon your redemption. Lord, we find ourselves often weak and troubled and helpless and worried. 
we feel forsaken, reproached by the culture in which we live, and abandoned. But you, O Lord, have watched over us from the very beginning of our lives and will continue to do so. It is upon you uh, that we rest. You have walked with us since the beginning of our days. And Lord, we ask that you not be far from us, for trouble is indeed near. And at times it feels like no one is helping, and yet we see that you have helped us over many, many years. Father, we think of Barry's announcement this morning and the, for the fame of his name, 25 years, 25 years, Calixto running back and forth to Mexico and building this network of churches through all kinds of trials and all kinds of setbacks and all kinds of challenges. But here they still are. And we send in a mission team yet again down into this effort that you have sustained now for 25 years. Oh, Lord, be not far from them down there in all the challenges that they face. For trouble is near. And be not far from us in our own situations whatever they may be. For it doesn't always or ever seem long before once again we find that trouble is near. We rest our hope in you who hear us when we pray and we rest it there in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. Throughout Mark's gospel, we have been reminded repeatedly that Jesus has very much a kingdom of God mindset about his life and ministry. We noted it particularly very early as we started to march through the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 Now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And we mentioned when we talked about this back then, the gospel of God is one of those places where it's probably a sort of sophisticated grammatical idea of what they call a plenary genitive. It's both subjective and objective at the same time. It's God's word to us. But it's also God's word to us about himself. It's the good news that God speaks. Well, at the same time, it is the good news about God. Um, The gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, More literally, you could say the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. 
has come near. In fact, the kingdom of God is so near that it's in one sense already here. So near as already here. And in another sense, as we've already been noting, not quite yet here. Now, both of those senses are found in something like the way that Jesus teaches us to pray. And some of you are going to be in a Sunday school class starting today on on the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In Matthew's version, it's more succinct in Luke's parallel account. Luke 11, 1 and following, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now in Matthew's version, you you get a, a bit of a Secondary phrase that I think explains the first phrase. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That is, the coming of the kingdom presently is the doing of God's will in the present age and the promise that someday God's will will be found absolutely reigning supreme over everyone, everywhere, at all times, in the new heaven and the new earth. And so you're praying, oh Lord, we look forward to the day in which people are more obedient to your will, both now and forever. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Luther, in a sermon on the Lord's Prayer, wrote this. If you want to know the kingdom of God, do not go far afield in search of it. If you wish to have it, you will find it close to you for decency Humility, truthfulness, chastity, and all other virtues, these make up the true kingdom of God. One cannot fetch these things from across the sea. They must blossom in the heart. So those two statements are both very, very much tightly, closely related to the kingdom that is already here and the kingdom that is yet to come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's the first Sunday of 2024, which means it's time for commercial about Bible reading plans. Um... Uh, So we interrupt this sermon uh, uh, for a related message, Bible reading plans. Uh, Discipleship journal. So how do you know what the will of God is? Well, it's revealed in Scripture. That's how we know. 
The only reason we know what God wants from us is he has told us. And there is a collection of writings where he has told us, and that collection is sacred scripture. The discipleship journal plan takes you through the New Testament and the Old Testament once in a year. Now, if you are in this plan, your assignment for today is don't have to read a thing. And that's true in the discipleship journal plan. Every seven days they get a day off. A day that they might catch up when they get behind, as I heard John Piper say some 30 years ago. He, he, he used that as a recommendation for the plan. If you've got a particularly busy week, you have a day to catch up. Uh, uh, what a wonderful thing. The second plan is a little more aggressive. The machine plan, as we mention every year, that takes you through the New Testament twice in a year, the Psalms twice in a year, and the rest of the Old Testament once. The beauty of the Machine Plan is that it has you in the Old and New Testament every day of the entire year. And you can accomplish that by going through the New Testament twice, because there's not 365 chapters in the New Testament, so much less than that. Um, uh, But this plan keeps you there. And so if you're in this plan today, you would be reading Genesis 7, Matthew 7, Ezra 7, and Acts 7. And that would be the balanced Christian life right there. Um, So that's the machine plan. But all of that to say, now back to our sermon, that's how you know what the will of God is. That's how you know what the kingdom requires of those who are in it. The kingdom not yet here, the kingdom already here, Mark 1, 9, or 9, 1 is a hinge uh, between them, and as I've already mentioned, hinging this verse, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory with his holy angels. Uh, That business of being ashamed is kingdom now. That business of coming at the end of the age is the kingdom consummated. And going on the other side, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And the disciples are supposed to be thinking of the words in Daniel chapter 7. Ho, ho, when they see this, those three of them. Um... Whether they did or not is is doubtful. But that's what Mark wants us to see as we read about their experience in any case. So our thesis for this morning. We are to live kingdom of God oriented lives. Right now, here and now. That's what Jesus did. That's what we're supposed to do. We are to live kingdom of God oriented lives. 
Uh, our, our purposes as a church, number one, we say we are becoming disciples. Well, this is one of those places where you have a, a, a practice, a, a mental thought practice that the New Testament urges on disciples that's very different from what the average American is supposed to think like. Number one is just disciples are to keep the reality of death in mind. Uh, The key to secular living is to forget that death is coming. Disciples are supposed to discipline themselves to keep the reality of death in mind. And notice how Jesus voice this upon them. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until, until. There are some standing here who will not taste death until. So what does it mean to taste death? Well, if you paid attention in our text and to the text that the um, worship team read, you'll already know that a phrase like that is context sensitive. Uh, it doesn't mean the same thing here as it means in John 8 to taste death. Uh, here, it means the more obvious of the two things, namely, it just means. Uh, They're not going to die. They're not going to experience physical death until they see the kingdom of God. Now here, in unbelieving critical scholarship, uh, they instantly pile on and you say, and this, you see, is where you find out the humanity of Jesus. Jesus thought that the final kingdom of God would come while members of the twelve were still alive. So that died out 1,900 years ago. Jesus was simply flat wrong about that. So there you go. Uh, That's about how reliable the rest of the Bible is too. And most of what Jesus says, just a man, and he got this whole kingdom thing completely wrong. Now, frankly, I mean, very, very, very gifted scholarly people say that. But when they say it, they they let you know clearly that they have another agenda that drives them because it really is kind of a silly thing to say. Uh, Because in the context, in the context... Jesus makes this little statement. And remember, Mark is writing this. And so this is a carefully edited thing. In our verse, Mark has Jesus say, Some of you will not see death until the kingdom of God comes. And then you read this. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves and was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, 
intensely white like no one on earth could bleach them. So in six days, some of you, namely three, Peter, James, and John, go up on a mountain and they see a vision of Jesus that is very much to remind them of the words of Daniel in Daniel 7. The glorious king at the end of the age coming on the clouds. They weren't dead yet. They weren't dead yet. Jesus set them up six days. They see it. They see it. Peter sees it. James sees it. John sees it. Now, all of them are going to see something very close to that in just a relatively short period of time measured in months because Jesus will rise from the dead and 11 out of the 12 will be seeing this as well, which is also a manifestation of the kingdom of God, uh, the, the king, the resurrected king, the ascended king. They're all going to live to see that according to the synoptics and the opening chapters of Acts. Now, on the other hand, the little phrase, you shall not taste death, has a different sense over in what the worship team read. Uh, John 8, 48 to 52. Now, the audience assumes that Jesus was saying, uh, I should say not the audience, but the Jewish leadership aspect of the audience is taking Jesus to be saying the same thing here as he says in Mark 9. And therefore, they're sure that he is out to lunch and has been demonstrably proved wrong. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet... I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, all right, that's it, right? Everybody out of the pool. Now, proof positive. Spike the anti-Jesus football in the end zone. Because Abraham died, the prophets all died, all kinds of people who know God, they all die. What are you talking about? Shall not taste death. Good grief. Well, that's because here, Jesus simply means... They do not taste the second death. They don't taste eternal death. Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. He will never taste death. Makes me think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago a Donald Great Gray Barnhouse 
illustration. He was famous for them, and actually fairly famous for using personal illustrations. And this is one of those. Barnhouse's wife died when his couple of his children were still relatively young. And they'd had the service at the church, and they were driving out to the graveside together. And he was in the back seat of this car, and there's one of his sons on his right side and one on his left side. And they were there in Philadelphia, and a, a semi-truck went rolling by them, and suddenly uh, they found themselves on this sunny day in the shadow of this semi-truck. And then the truck passed them, and the sun came back out. And Barnhouse turned to the boys, and they said, he said, Boys, this is how it was with your mom. Death never hit her. The shadow of death passed over her, and she's gone. But death itself never hit her. It's not like that truck hit her. It's like the shadow of that truck passed over her as it passed by us. And she's with the Lord. That's the kind of nuanced, metaphorical thinking that Jesus has here. They shall never taste the power of death in its full Genesis 3 threat. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Spiritually die, eventually physically die, but you shall surely die. You shall surely die. Very, very emphatic. And the construction here in Mark 9.1, also very Emphatic Again, scholars argue about this, but it's an emphatic construction. Whether or not you're to take it emphatically is what they argue about. Rodney Decker says no, and Dan Wallace um, in his uh, intermediate grammar says definitely yes. Yes. You will surely never taste death. Double negative on the way into it. You will surely never taste death death. And that's what disciples are to know. Nothing to fear in death. Those who are in the kingdom of God. Nothing to fear in death. Though physical death is coming. Uh, The disciples all died, but they did not die in the, the John 8 sense. They definitely died in the Mark 9, 1 sense. It's fascinating to watch us as a secular society try to deal with death. We deal with it tremendously dishonestly for the most part. Once in a while, there are a few very bold sort of scholars. Though when you press them, almost not very many. Look, death is just non-existence. It's extinction. Absolute extinction. But that's not what most secular people say, is it? When they come to face death close at hand, what do they say? They went to a better place. They went to a better place. 
Now, they don't have any kind of a worldview that has any reason to believe in a better place, but they don't know. They, they, they went to a better place. The author of the Epistle to the Hebrews once outlined it, remember, this way. Hebrews nine twenty seven. Just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that, judgment. That's not what we say. Here's what we say. It's been appointed to a man to die once. And after that, you go to a better place. There it is. No matter what you were like, you just go to a better place. No matter what your relationship to God, you go to a better place. That's just how it works. It's appointed unto man, you die once, then you go to a better place. Jesus says, no, no. Not quite like that. Not quite like that. Secondly, disciples are to keep the kingdom of God as already here in mind. Disciples are to keep the kingdom of God as already here in mind. You will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God when it comes with power, and then it's the transfiguration that flows from that. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And so it's these three that get to have this pretaste of the kingdom of God coming with Power. That is, they see the image that is to remind them, as we'll see it again in a moment, of Daniel 7, uh, 9 through 13. Um, but this is also very closely related to the only months away resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's so closely related to that as when the transfiguration is over and Jesus is walking down the mountain with the disciples who sought, remember he says this to them. Verse 9, Mark 9, 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Don't tell anybody what you saw. Until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now we'll talk more about why that might have been um, when we when we get to it. But at the close of the Gospels, right? What do you find? Well, you find Jesus making resurrection appearances uh, left and right, and then he, at the end of forty days, ascends into heaven. And you have already in the Gospels the groundwork laid for the kind of vision we noted last week, Revelation 5.13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And ever. Amen. 
Now, Revelation 5 is written to people who are living presently in this adulterous and evil generation. And it says to us, remember who your king is and where he is. He's the resurrected Lord. He's ascended to the right hand of God. That's your king. You need to remember that. Why? Because he doesn't seem to be running anything here right now. It seems that everything is running against him. His words, his recommendations, his moral outlook is completely out of fashion. And you, and you might be terribly, terribly, terribly tempted to be ashamed of his perspectives in the present because they're so out of fashion. He says, Don't do it. Remember whose perspective it is. It's the king at the right hand of God. Because I warn you, last verse again of the previous chapter, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So the kingdom and the king are already here. Don't be ashamed of the words of the king. This is why it is so important to do something like daily Bible reading. Because you may or may not read your Bible every day. But what you have no power over at all is the fact that you are going to be bombarded by the thought processes of the evil one every day. Every day. Every day. No matter where you turn. So that's a given. So to counteract that, That's why I recommend you need to discipline yourself to place the perspective of the kingdom before yourself every day, every day, every day as well. Thirdly, disciples are to keep the kingdom not yet here in mind. Disciples are to keep the kingdom not yet here in mind. This is all in that last little phrase, with power. Now that does apply to the present, but primarily. The kingdom of God, after it has come, with power. Um, He was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I mentioned this fall quite a number of times when you're going through the book of Revelation. One of the passages that simply dominates the landscape in the book of Revelation is Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 13. Verse 9 is the one that Mark 
has in mind as he writes this, that God had in mind as he showed the three disciples the vision that he showed them on the mount. As I looked, thrones were placed in the ancient of days took his seat, his clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands of thousands served him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed. Just like in Daniel's vision, right? All of a sudden, all the powers of evil, the Babylonian Empire, the Roman Empire, all the great, all of a sudden, it's just a vision of the future, eventually, All that seemed so powerful on earth, the beast was killed, body destroyed, given over and burned with fire. Of the rest of the beasts and their dominion, all taken away. Their lives were prolonged for a season of time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, The clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and presented himself before him. Now, when you're reading the Old Testament in the light of the New, the New Testament will often just give one little image from a passage, but it's meant to alert you to the message of the whole passage. So it puts you in a context And the kingdom arrives in this vision of Jesus, white like snow, like Daniel 7. And who is he? Well, he's the ultimate king. He's actually Yahweh himself. He's the ancient of days. It's like John chapter 1. He is the ancient of days, and he's standing next to the ancient of days. Very Trinitarian. Very Trinitarian. Remember, Jesus brings his trial to a close by referring to Daniel 7. Um, Remember, they're pressing him, pressing him, pressing him. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And eventually the high priest says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says, Mark 14, 62, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7.13. And the same, that's it! That's it! And off to the cross he goes. But see, the disciples and we are being shown, no, this is who he is. This is the king. This is whose words you and I listen to. This is the king. And at the end of things are not in doubt. 
At the end of the age, the king comes, the kingdom is established, and we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth. That's the future of those who belong to the kingdom of God now. That's the future. It's certain, it's sure, and it is incredibly, incredibly important to hang on to that because as we noted last week, presently we live in a adulterous and sinful generation where our ideas are not only out of fashion, they're starting to be criminalized. And will increasingly probably become criminalized. And all kinds of pressures that we who are over 50 years old never faced in our younger years. Those of you in your younger years, you are going to face those pressures. They're going to come straight at you. Straight at you. And what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And that's where Jesus says, well, I warn you what not to do. Don't be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Because I warn you, as tempting as it may seem, short-sighted. For if you are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you when I come in the glory of the Father with his holy angels. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We ask that you would enable us to keep before our minds the fact that we live in your kingdom now, that you are our king. You are to function as our king this day. You are the hope of our ultimate destiny in a new heaven and a new earth when you come again at the end of the age, as Daniel sees it on the clouds, as we read of you becoming, as the Ancient of Days down and speaking of your Son in the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus being manifest as dazzling light, as the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. May the wonder and the power and the importance, the prominence of Jesus be brought home to us and own our thinking and own our decision-making and own our perspective. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.